everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm angry. Sad and angry. I'm angry at the violence being shown by militarized police forces. I'm angry at the institutionalized white supremacy in this country that's enabled racist police officers to kill so many black men and women. I'm angry at our racist idiot president trying to institute martial law in response to people being upset about the murder of black people. And I'm angry at myself for not doing enough to stand in opposition to those things. Not nearly enough. I want to offer my love and support to everyone out there who is doing what they can to fight and to help dismantle the structural racism in this country. Whether that's by being out protesting or community organizing or helping educate others and yourself or other forms of activism. I also know that my love and support are about as helpful and tangible as my thoughts and prayers. So I'm also going to donate all of this month's Patreon money to bail funds and protest support. And then Lisa and I are going to match that amount. Anyway, I want to thank everyone who's standing up and speaking out. I know you didn't tune in to hear me talk about this stuff, and my voice isn't an important one to listen to about this anyway, but I haven't been thinking goofy stuff about bears this week, so it would have been weird to talk about that. The rest of the show was recorded last week, and... We have a great guest. Dr. Osvaldo Oyola is filling in for Corey this week, and I really enjoyed talking with him. And I think the transition to the rest of the show is awkward enough right now that we're just going to skip the synopsis rhyme this week. So without any further ado, let's uh, do this. Defenders number 76, October 1979. Little Triggers. Written by Stephen Grant, drawn by Herb Trimpe, inked by Steve Mitchell, lettered by Clem Robbins, colored by George Russos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup: Valkyrie, The Incredible Hulk, Hellcat, Nighthawk, The Wasp, and Moon Dragon. Previously in the Defenders. An indeterminate but seemingly significant amount of comic book time ago, Hellcat, a.k.a. Patsy Walker, who was at the time a member of the Avengers, went to the moons of Saturn to get psychic Jedi training from a fancy bald lady named Moondragon. But soon after her training began, the fun-loving feline found out that the Earth was in danger from a sentient ruby that liked to quote Rush lyrics, so she returned to her native planet to sound the alarm. After aiding the Defenders in their defeat of the Malevolent Mineral, Patsy decided to stick around and join our titular non-team. Hooray! In more recent Defenders news, Nighthawk, a.k.a. Kyle Richmond, learned that his business was under investigation for multiple counts of gross financial malfeasance. Acting on the advice of his lawyer, the billionaire do well burn enthusiast displayed an uncharacteristic sense of responsibility and announced that in order to protect the Defenders from involvement in his legal trouble, he was tendering his resignation. The affluent avian aficionado announced that the gang was free to keep using his Long Island Riding Academy as their base of operations, then hopped in his limo to go meet with the district attorney. 
And Kyle wasn't the only one of our heroes taking a break from the Defenders. The Hulk decided he was tired of Patsy's taste in music, so he went to the beach and yelled at a whale. Valkyrie and Hellcat had little time to stretch out in their suddenly uncrowded headquarters, for soon after Kyle and the Hulk's respective departures, they found their newfound solitude imposed upon by some uninvited guests. A flamboyantly attired, raygun-wielding ex-con art student calling himself Fool Killer popped in for a visit. After introducing himself and his two apprehensive traveling companions, a sad sack Steve Gerber stand-in named Richard Rory and a freelance photographer named Amber Grant, the self-styled lethal enforcer of sensibility announced that he had reached the conclusion that the Defenders were fools, and as such, he was going to kill them. Oh no! For some reason, Val and Patsy objected to this plan, and at the risk of being viewed as poor hosts, expressed their intention to not be murdered. This proved to be a sticking point for Fool Killer. Negotiations broke down, and a fierce battle erupted. Eventually, Valkyrie managed to kick Fool Killer in the face enough times that he stopped trying to murder them. But during the course of the scuffle, the headquarters caught on fire. Temporarily tired of whale yelling, Hulk returned to the riding academy to regroup with his buddies. Some cops tried to shoot him, but he told them to knock it off, and they did. Kyle got word that his erstwhile co-workers were involved in a conflict, and decided that despite his recent resolution to abstain from adventuring, he would intervene this one last time. Kyle slapped on his fancy bird suit and flew back to the riding academy, but when he arrived, he was shocked to see that his property was ablaze. When a reporter mistook the perturbed plutocrat for the Avenger Hawkeye, Nighthawk lost his shit decrying the non-team he quit less than an hour ago, and declaring, despite his total lack of authority to do so, that the Defenders were officially disbanded. Then he flew off to rejoin the meeting with the DA that he had just left abruptly with no explanation. Bye, Nighthawk! The Hulk decided that he too had had enough of the Defenders' antics and leapt off, presumably to seek out some more marine life in need of a dressing down. Bye, the Hulk! Hellcat and Valkyrie still reeling from both the battle and from the departure, return, and abrupt redeparture of their non-teammates, attempted to process the ramifications of these recent events. The troubled twosome had not yet reached any conclusions when they were approached by Fool Killer's reluctant acquaintances, Richard and Amber. The two civilians sheepishly explained that they had sought out the defenders independently of their nominally lethal associate in hopes that the crime fighters might help them locate their missing friend, a 12-year-old boy named James Michael Starling. Despite their misgivings, Val and Patsy agreed to do their best. No longer having Kyle's considerable resources to draw upon, Patsy decided to call on the aid of her old pals the Avengers, and the newly depleted roster of Defenders set off in search of James Michael Starling. Gadzooks! Will the Hulk find another large sea mammal to yell at? Is this the same James Michael Starling that starred in Airwolf? And does the fact that Defenders number 76 follows up on events depicted in the Omega the Unknown series mean that I'll have to write a previously in Omega the Unknown segment? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... No, he finds an amorphous silver blob to yell at. No, that's Jan Michael Vincent. And, fortunately, no. It means I'll trick this episode's special guest, Osvaldo Ayola, into writing one for me. Hooray! So, according to Osvaldo, Previously in Omega the Unknown, Precocious homeschooled 12-year-old James Michael Starling discovered the hard way that his parents were actually a pair of robots when a car accident in the middle of their move from an isolated house in Pennsylvania mountain country to New York City destroyed them both. 
Mysteriously unhurt in the accident, James Michael got to see his mom's melting decapitated head before he passed out, warning him that he should not listen to the voices. All evidence of his parents' android origins burned away in the fire caused by the collision. Waking up in a hospital for special cases, James Michael ended up the ward of a mousy nurse named Ruth Hart and her Spitfire roommate Amber in a roach-infested Hell's Kitchen apartment, but not before learning that he shared some kind of mysterious connection with a new-to-earth extraterrestrial who was the sole survivor of his destroyed homeworld, the Caped Man. The Caped Man, who looked like a cross between Black Bolt mated with Superman except in a fresh one-piece royal blue Adidas tracksuit with red piping and a cape that came over his shoulders into buckles that looked like the Greek letter Omega with another Omega-shaped symbol on his headband like a badass, arrived on Earth from his home planet, where purple killer robots destroyed all his people. At the hospital, the robots came for James Michael, thinking for some unknown reason that he was the Caped Man. When the wordless alien hero was not up to the task of defeating the robots, the tween fell into a kind of fugue state, where his thoughts intermingled with the ever-silent caped man, and gouts of energy exploded from his palms, destroying the robots and leaving Omega symbols burned into his flesh. Over the course of their ten-issue series, James Michael Starling and the Caped Man shared in a variety of oddball encounters, including cameos from the Hulk, talking back to J. Jonah Jameson, and facing off against Electro at the Jerry Lewis telethon. Hardly speaking a word, but hanging out like a neighborhood regular, the caped man had a fraught relationship with his community for refusing to follow the typical superheroic good guy protocols. Namely, he wanted to get paid. Plus, he bought an expensive three-piece suit and started wearing it over his costume. After one of his schoolmates was beaten to death by bullies, James Michael ran away with his friend Diane to go back to his family's home in Pennsylvania, where he discovered an inert duplicate pair of robot parents hidden behind a secret panel. Unsure of what to do about his absence, James Michael's guardian Ruth freaked out while her roommate Amber was certain that being mature for his age, the kid would return. Around this time, Richard Rory, Ruth's ex-boyfriend and buddy to Man-Thing, showed up in town after a stint in jail to mooch a place to live. But he was followed by Fool Killer, who claimed to kill those who did not act poetically, whatever that meant. To paraphrase Mr. T, I pity the fool, Killer. Meanwhile, the caped man flew to Las Vegas with his septuagenarian buddy Gramps to use his powers to fix games and win lots of money to set up a trust fund for James Michael Starling. When the usually gumball machine polymorphic supercomputer headed Ruby Thursday showed up with the aid of a big purple demon looking guy named Dybbuk and stole all his money, the caped man went on a rampage in order to track her down. Unfortunately for him, when he finally found the person he thought was responsible for the theft, it turned out to just be some poor woman whose guys Ruby had stolen. Smashing her car and pulling the frightened woman from the burning wreckage, the caped man demanded that she return his money. But the police intervened, and soon the interplanetary refugee in a caped tracksuit was shot dead in the streets of Sin City. Gadzooks! Is the mysterious caped man with Omega symbols on his costume really dead? What will James Michael Starling do now that he's confirmed his parents are really robots? And what's the secret connection between the nearly mute caped man and the precocious boy? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Yes. He starts to lose his shit and then doubles in power. And... Maybe we'll find that out next issue. Thanks, Osvaldo. I'm sure now that we have that background information, everything that happens in this issue will make perfect sense. Right? Right? 
Janet Van Dyne, a.k.a. the Wasp, drives Patsy, Valkyrie, Richard Rory, and Amber Grant around in the Avengers' fancy convertible jet plane. I guess they must have stopped somewhere along the way to pick up Amber's roommate Ruth, because she's there too. Seems like their plan to find the missing kid is to just have Janet fly them around the country, presumably slowing down every so often so that they can yell, Here, James Michael! Here, boy! out the window and maybe shake a box of boy food for him? Sounds reasonable. Ruth and Ember take a few pages to fill the defenders in on some of the information Osvaldo provided us. Apparently, this is not the first time that the gang has been treated to this particular flashback-slash-exposition dump, because Patsy gets bored and starts daydreaming. She's startled from her reverie by the sudden appearance of a whole grip of flying saucers, because why the fuck not? Meanwhile in Las Vegas, distinctly domed do-batter Ruby Thursday uses the powers of her nonsensical noggin to shapeshift into the form of a police officer and break into the morgue. Once inside, she summons her old buddy the Dimmick, and together the perfidious pair proceed to yoink the corpse of the caped man and take it back to their secret hideout to dissect. Once they reach Ruby's lab, the diabolical duo commences to cadaver carving and soon discovers that the caped man is an incredibly complex cybernetic organism. Good to know. Will the unnaturally noodled ne'er-do-well and her demon buddy play amateur coroner, at James Michael Starling's childhood home in Pennsylvania, the precocious runaway and his traveling companion Diane attempt to make sense of the inert robot parents that they just found in a closet? Yeah, good luck with that, guys. They don't get that much farther than, well, that's weird, before Jan Michael Vincent starts hearing voices in his head and almost passes out. Diane is a little freaked out by this, but Philip Michael Thomas assures her that it's no big deal. The melting robot head of his mom once explained to him that he needed to ignore the voices and not listen to them. For some reason, this doesn't seem to entirely assuage Diane's discomfort. Go figure. They don't get much of a chance to think things over, though, because they hear a noise outside. It's a bunch of heavily armed robots that are beaming down from those flying saucers Patsy spotted earlier. The robots start making their way towards the house, discussing amongst themselves that they can tell from the robot sensors that 1. The entity they are searching for is inside the house, b. It is, for some reason, smaller than it used to be, and thirdly, they're totally going to blow it up with their space guns. Uh-oh! Aboard the Avengers jet, the gang spots the robots beaming down from their flying saucers and figure that that's the sort of thing that they probably ought to check out. As their jet lands, Amber, Ruth, and Richard are surprised to spot James Michael Vincent and Diane running from the house. They're even more surprised when one of the robots attacks James Michael, and he responds by freaking out and blasting beams of pure energy out of the palms of his hands that melt his assailant. To be fair, James Michael seems pretty surprised by that as well. The robots double down on their attempts to kill JMS, so Hellcat, Valkyrie, and the Wasp leap into the fray and start smashing robots. Hooray! James Michael starts bugging out, and looks like he's about to pass out or something, so Diane takes him back inside the house. The defenders are holding their own against the extraterrestrial robots, but the tide of battle seems to be turning against them, so Hellcat runs off to the Quinjet and uses its CB radio to call for help. I would have thought that the Avengers might have had a more high-tech communication system than that, but Patsy literally says that it's a CB, which is kind of great. Having just seen Convoy recently... It kind of makes me hope that Chris Christopherson and Polly from the Rocky movies are going to pull up in their big rigs and start punching robots. Sadly, they do not. 
nor are Rubber Duck and Love Machine the only heroes that fail to respond to Hellcat's distress signal. Unaware of his former co-worker's current conundrum, Nighthawk flies into the window of his downtown office, where a government agent greets him and gruffly hands him an injunction, banning him from dressing up in his bird suit and punching people until his court case is concluded. Hooray! Kyle seems legitimately flabbergasted at the idea that his actions may have consequences. Meanwhile, somewhere on the coast of Virginia, Hulk is leaping around thinking about what an asshole Kyle is, and probably low-key looking for a whale to yell at when he runs into a giant amorphous silver blob. The chromed-out Barbapapa starts evangelizing at the Hulk about a being it refers to as the Master. The shiny glob of goo proselytizes at the Hulk. Have you heard the good news? The Master is always with you. He has been watching you like a creepo, and if he thinks you're worthy, you can serve him. The Hulk isn't trying to hear that space evangelism. Rather than politely declining the Space Barba Papa's brochure, Hulk attempts to smash the silver blob. It doesn't go great. Hulk's blow glances harmlessly off the giant reflective glob, and the Hulk falls on his ass. The blob is like, Great punch, the Hulk! That kind of enthusiasm is going to serve the Master well! See the Hulk? This is why you just take the pamphlets and say that you're busy, but you'll read them later. Back in Pennsylvania, the robots are kind of kicking the defenders' butts. First Valkyrie falls to a barrage of laser blasts. Then one of the robots backhands the wasp unconscious. Patsy struggles on valiantly. She manages to disarm one of her android adversaries and tosses its ray gun to Richard Rory. Huh. Interesting choice. Much to Hellcat's chagrin, Rory turns out not to be the competent comrade-in-arms she was hoping for. Seconds after catching the weapon, the sad sack Steve Gerber stand-in accidentally discharges the weapon, blasting Patsy in the back and nearly knocking her unconscious. Things are looking pretty grim for the non-robot guys, when suddenly, Moondragon, Hellcat's badass bald Jedi trainer, shows up in her spaceship. Hooray! Moondragon was listening to some Earth radio when she got Patsy's distress call and decided to see what all the hullabaloo was about. The sexy space sensei strolls up to the robots and is like, What's all this nonsense about? Knock it off, you robots! The robots all look sheepish and are like, Sorry, space lady, we're not looking for any trouble. We just got an important mission, is all. Before the surprisingly deferential automaton has a chance to explain the nature of his mission, the house into which James Michael and Diane recently fled starts glowing brightly. Huh. The glowing only lasts a few seconds, but when it stops, the head robot is like, Well, shit. Our sensors now show that the target of our search is not here anymore. We gotta go. Bye. Then they hop into their flying saucers and zoom off. Moondragon watches them go and is like, Fine. Just don't let it happen again. Richard Rory is like, What the fuck, magic bald lady? You're not gonna let them fly away like nothing happened. Moondragon is like, Oh, hush up, dum-dum. Look, Val, Patsy, and the Wasp are waking up now. They were only stunned. Those space robots aren't so bad. Their only real crime was trying to murder a little boy. So, let's all go inside the house and see what the glowing was about, shall we? The Defender's decision as to whether or not to follow Moondragon's advice is made for them when they hear Diane screaming from inside the house. A still groggy Valkyrie Kool-Aid mans her way through the locked door, and the rest of the gang follows her in. Once they reach the living room, they're greeted by a visibly shaken Diane, 
who ushers them into the next room. James Michael Starling is nowhere to be found. In his stead lies an unconscious body that bears an uncanny resemblance both in appearance and attire to the recently deceased caped man. To be continued. Man, now that Kyle the Hulk and Steve are gone, I kind of hope that Rubber Duck and Love Machine from Convoy end up joining the Defenders. Patsy, hop on that CB and hope they got their ears on. And my good-for-many-things brother, Corey, had entirely too much caffeine and started vibrating at a different frequency than the rest of the universe and thus is unavailable for commentary on this show. But joining me in his stead is Dr. Osvaldo Ayola, a public scholar, editor, and member of the International Comics Arts Forum Executive Board. His work has appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, Shelf Dust, and Apex Magazine. He is the editor and primary writer for The Middle Spaces, a public-facing scholarly blog examining race, gender, and popular culture, especially in comic books. He is the first winner of the Gilbert Seldes Prize for Public Scholarship, awarded by the Comic Studies Society, the International Comics Studies Professional Organization at Conference, awarded in 2019. Wow, I once got honorable mention in a science fair in third grade, so I think we're on equal footing here. That sounds great. I never had a science project that ever even worked. So I never, definitely never got honorable mention. Well, the trick is you have to make a baking soda volcano at the same time as 14 other people make a baking soda volcano. And so as long as there are only two other people doing different projects, everyone else gets honorable mention. Uh, I thought you were going to say yours was the only one who actually exploded. No, it didn't explode great, but I think I made up for that by making tiny people out of clothespin that could drown in the lava. Nice. Or burn to death in the lava, it's a little unclear. Hopefully you asphyxiate before you burn to death. Well, as I said, I only got honorable mention. I didn't <laughs> win the science fair, so I don't really know. <laughs> you don't actually know anything about actual volcanoes. No, no, just uh, baking soda and people made out of clothespins. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Osvaldo. Oh, this is like a dream come true to me. Titan of the Defense is my favorite podcast. I've been a fan since the beginning, since before the beginning. I was a fan of traveling through the Bronze Age. I'm so happy to be here. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I've always enjoyed corresponding with you and got to meet you very briefly when I was in New York last year. And uh, yeah, this is great. I'm really glad you're able to join us, especially for this issue, which is revolving around an area of expertise of yours, uh, Omega the Unknown. Yeah, definitely my favorite Gerber work that I've read, Omega the Unknown, not, not that he returned to the Defenders to do it. So I was happy to talk a little bit. I was very eager for you to reach this point to get to talk about it and to, to see your, your take on it. Because, you know, at the time, a lot of fans were clamoring for the canceled series, Omega the Unknown, to be wrapped up and so they they kind of made a quick offhand promise or maybe steve gerber made a quick offhand promise to wrap it up in defenders but then he got fired so while they were stuck with were plenty of fans who kept writing in to being like when are we going to get the end of omega the unknown when are we going to get the end of omega the unknown so i think finally they were like let's just hire someone to do that and so we'll stop getting these damn letters 
And that's why it ended up in the pages of the Defenders, not because they particularly cared about the story or the character or even so much the fans, but rather because they just wanted to stop getting the letters asking about it. Yeah, fair enough. I was honestly just curious about the timing on that because it's like a full two years after Omega the Unknown got canceled and it got canceled because it wasn't selling very well. So I was honestly wondering if they waited until after Steve Gerber was gone from the company deliberately to do that because after the series Omega the Unknown wrapped up, it was like another year that he was still writing for Marvel. I'm not exactly sure the details of why they waited so long or why he didn't get to do it. It's just by the time it came around to do it, he was gone and there was too much bad blood. Uh, And Mary Screenies, uh, who was the co-writer on Omega the Unknown, we shouldn't, I guess we shouldn't erase her because I, I, I think, honestly, part of the reason why Omega the Unknown is as good as it is is because he had the influence of Mary Screenies on it as opposed to him writing by himself. She wasn't going to, you know, do it either. You know, they both felt betrayed by Marvel. So, um, and they felt extra betrayed once they got some, at that time, relatively unknown person to come in and do it. From what I understand, the reason Stephen Grant accepted uh, writing it is because you couldn't afford to say no to a job. Yeah, I had heard that. And I found that when I was looking into this a little bit, that it seems like Stephen Grant was just like in the office and looking for work and got it pawned off on him by Ed Hannigan and Al Milgram because they didn't want to catch any of the flack that they knew that would be coming because it seems like it really is a no-win situation publishing this to begin with, which was kind of what made me wonder if it was a punitive action from Jim Shooter's part because I know there was a lot of bad blood between him and Gerber, but it doesn't seem like that was necessarily the case. I, I think you're right. I think it is just that they wanted the vocal minority of letter writers to stop bothering them. I mean, that's what Stephen Grant says. He actually commented on a a post I wrote about these issues on the middle spaces. And I was really surprised. I was like, oh, that's great. And we had a little back and forth. And he explained, one, that he's not very proud of these issues at all. He thinks they're, they're best forgotten. Fair enough. And two, that he thinks the only reason he was offered it was because no one else wanted to do it. And they were just tired of getting letters from people. Uh, you know, this is the release the Snyder Cut of the late <laughs> 70s. Except for it's different because there wasn't an internet, so it was a lot harder. You had to actually physically write a letter. So, like, from what I've heard, it was like they were tired of getting the letters about it, but it was like maybe two or three letters a month, something like that. Right. Yeah, no one was getting doxxed or, or like, being harassed on the internet for it. But nevertheless, Marvel was like, yeah, that's enough. Yeah, I went back and reread all of the Omega, the unknown issues. There's only 10 of them, but in preparation for this, and I was struck by how good that series is for the most part. There are definitely some issues better than others, definitely. Well, two of them are written and drawn by other team, another creative team, like fill-ins, because as we know, Gerber was infamously late with all of his scripts. So even though Omega the Unknown, I think, was bi-monthly for a lot of it, he still wasn't getting his scripts in in time. And so other people got brought in. And you can tell the difference. And I think the non-Gerber screenies issues are clearly among the worst of those 10 issues. I think there's two of them. 
Yeah, there's one by Scott Edelman and one by Roger Stern, who are both writers that I generally like. Oh, yeah, Roger Stern's one of my favorites. Yeah, mine too. But you could tell they're both under constraints to be like, okay, so this has to just be a placeholder story in which nothing really happens and you, you get like reset to the normal at the by the end of the issue yeah and so it really stands out in a series as weird as omega the unknown that there are these two bottle episodes that are essentially just superhero adventures where the hero fights a villain yeah villain of the month kind of thing and the other thing that's interesting about those issues and it's present in these defenders issues as well in the gerber and screenies issues omega quote unquote, is never actually ever referred to as Omega. He is just called the caped man. I hadn't remembered that until I had gone back to reread them. I always think of the guy on the cover of the first issue as being Omega, especially because he does have the little like tiara with the Omega symbol on it. Right. And James Michael Starling has the Omega stigmata on his hands. So there's a whole Omega motif. But he's never actually called that. But I guess the villain writers were like, well, we can't he can't not have a name, so we're just going to have... All of a sudden, it's very weird, right? It's like people start referring to him as Omega, and it's like, well, if you were following the the series at the time, you would have been like, well, why are they calling him Omega? He's never actually called that. No one's ever actually said the words Omega. So, yeah, I guess Gerber was all about the unknown part. The unknown part was very important to him, which I think was part of what fails with this issue, is that they're designed to fill in the unknown when the unknown, I think, was part of the point of the ongoing series, which might also explain why it didn't do well. Yeah, I totally understand rereading it, why it wasn't a strong seller. But I've reread a bunch of Steve Gerber stuff recently, and I was nervous about rereading Omega the Unknown because of that, because I remember really liking Steve Gerber's stuff. But in the uh, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show, podcast that I host with Lisa. My second favorite podcast. Ah, shucks. Thank you. That's been a really tough read, and it's been making me re-examine how I feel about Gerber's writing. The metaphor that I keep coming back to with it is, for a while I was in a band, and I remember being in the studio, and we would be mixing or mastering a track, and... We'd be going over the same track over and over again and making minute changes to it. So like, just be like, okay, turn up the bass like just tiny bit in this one part. And so we'd listen to like 15 versions of a song that would be almost identical. Add chorus here. No, no, not that much chorus. A little less chorus. Right. And then one of us would say something like, you know what? Fuck it. I just want to hear how this sounds. Turn up the enveloping effect all the way on this one. And we would listen to it and be like, this is amazing. And the engineer would just be like, okay, well, let's keep that track, but let's keep one of the other ones as well. And we'd go back and listen to it the next day. It'd be like, oh, that one that we fell in love with because it sounded different than the song that we were sick of is total garbage. Like, it's different, but that doesn't make it good. Sounds like you had a good engineer. Oh, yeah, we absolutely did. Shout out to Larry Crane at Jackpot Studios. But it's that kind of thing with Gerber. I I think he works really well if you're reading a lot of comic books from that era at the same time, and then you read one of his, and you're like, wow, this is really different and really refreshing. And so when you do a deep dive into just his stuff, there were a lot of things that stood out as things that were not great that I had problems with that I kind of, I think, had glossed over before. Yeah, and I think also, like, 
I don't know when you originally read Howard the Duck or originally read Omega. For me, I was much younger when I was exposed to these things. So for me, there's also that element of um, maybe I was, my, my taste wasn't as discerning or there was um, references that I didn't get, but that now in retrospect, I'm like kind of look at, you know, I'm like, you know, sucking my teeth kind of as I read it, you know, so. Yeah. But I mean, honestly, some of his stuff does really hold up well. And Omega the Unknown is among the best of it. I would maybe put some of his early Man-Thing stuff, which I really like, up there with it. And some of Howard the Duck is still really good, but it gets very, very self-indulgent. And also, he allows himself to meander with the plot and fuck with it more because it's his personal project that he's the editor on. And I feel like with Omega the Unknown, having the, like, tempering influence of... Mary Screenies, or Screenies? I think it's Screenies, yeah. Who, I'm not familiar with much of her solo writing. Reading Omega the Unknown makes me want to read more of it because of how much better I think it is than the stuff that Gerber was doing on his own. But I also think a big part of it is just advanced plotting. Like, with Omega the Unknown, it is really weird, bizarre stories, but you do get the impression that there is somewhere that it's headed. And that's I think one of Gerber's major shortcomings. Yeah, I've always wondered, you know, they they always said they were going to take the answer or the the explanations of Omega the Unknown to the grave with them. And in the in the case of Steve Gerber, he has. And Mary Scre- Mary Screeny says she won't ever tell anybody what they had in mind when they had planned for Omega the Unknown. Um so I'm, I believe her. You know, it's been this long. I don't think I don't see why she would change her mind now. Um, so I've always had that wonder, like, how much did they really know? How much did they leave open to develop uh, over time? And, you know, there's clearly some advanced plotting, as you said, but I always wonder how, just how much there was. Did you have any idea where you thought the plot was headed in it? No, honestly, <clears throat> I, you know, I, I, I usually count myself pretty good at, at being able to determine, like, where something is headed or what's about to happen. But mm-hmm. with Omega the Unknown... I didn't feel that way at all. Omega was always making, see, I call him Omega too because it's easy shorthand. The caped <laughs> man, he was always making choices that a typical superhero would never make. He would see someone robbing something and he would think about, is it even my play? Like, what do I care if he robs this store? But then someone's like, I'll give you 200 bucks in a new suit if you, if you stop him. And he's like, well, I can use 200 bucks in a new suit. But it's not because he's greedy. It's because, you know, it's not like he's like a mercenary character. It's because... I don't know why. It's because the ethics of superheroes don't make sense to him because he's like a survivor of another world. I think Gerber was really playing with the assumptions of the superhero genre in a way that I really loved. I I found very intriguing and interesting. And when he's like, I'm going to fly off to Vegas to, to rig the games, to win money, use my powers to win all this money so I can get James Michael out of, you know, out of Hell's Kitchen and into a better situation... That's not, you know, no one does that, right? Yeah, that's one of the things that I think is kind of a running motif in a lot of Gerber's work is the whole stranger in a strange land character. Mm -hmm. But he has a tendency, like with Howard the Duck, he ends up just kind of letting that conceit go and infusing so much of himself into Howard that they're just indiscernible and you don't have that aspect of it anymore. With Omega the Unknown, he really did kind of keep him a blank slate that I think was just trying to figure out the rules of humanity in a way that worked really well with having the 12-year-old also 
as an outsider trying to figure out the rules of humanity in the way that a lot of kids do. And I thought that was just, it worked so well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, you know, a lot of times, and I've made this argument in other places that I think superhero stuff works best or often works best, not always, but often works best as a metaphor for adolescence. Right? Yeah. I, mean, I know they use superheroes as a metaphor for all kinds of things, but that idea of, especially with Omega the Unknown, assuming there's an answer that you're eventually going to grow into, but once we become adults, we know that that's not actually the case, right? Like mm-hmm. there's no, there's no, we don't ever figure things out completely, right? We just think, but as a, as kids, we, we often think that, oh, when I get to be a certain age, I'm going to know, I'm going to understand, I'm going to be able to do X, Y, Z. And I think there's something about superheroes that helps it, and especially the way Gerber writes them, that, that I think goes along with that idea. And James Michael Starling has, as an adolescent, right? As a tween, he's like 12, I guess. Yeah. It seems like some of his classmates are described as being 14, but I'm pretty sure he's described as being 12. So yeah. I guess there's some range in his school. Well, he's precocious, right? So maybe he was advanced a grade or two. But yeah, I think that, you know, not to bash Gerber too much, but I also think that with, he himself felt like an outcast, I think. Yeah. And I think that's why when Howard the Duck becomes self-indulgent, his like, complaining about being the outsider doesn't always work because he is even though he's a duck he's also like a cis white dude who's complaining that he's on the outside yeah despite the fact that howard is an extraterrestrial anthropomorphic talking duck his master status is that he's a white dude as to where this story was going i also did not know where it was going but I would say that it wasn't here. Yeah, for certain. So I could honestly, I could talk about Omega the Unknown with you all day, and maybe we should set up a time where we could do that yeah, later. Yeah, sure. But we should probably talk about this actual comic book for a minute or two. We could do a uh, like a Patreon special. I'd be into that. Yeah, all right, we'll talk about it after. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about Little Triggers, the story of Defenders number 76. First of all, Little Triggers, uh, Elvis Costello reference. Oh, is that true? I, I didn't I didn't catch that. I'm not I'm not a huge I mean, I know some Elvis Costello, but I'm not a huge fan. I didn't know that. That makes sense. Late 70s comics dudes probably really loved Elvis Costello. I can see that being the case. Yeah, seems like a, an early version of like nerd culture. Mm hmm. I like Elvis Costello. It's honestly a much hipper reference than I think we're used to seeing in these comics. So makes sense that Stephen Grant was a younger writer at the time. Is, is that less, more or less than the Blue Oyster Cult stuff? See, I feel like Blue Oyster Cult and like Rush were a little bit more mainstream and I don't know, less hipstery, you know? Hmm. This has nothing to do with anything, but the first, my first uh, exposure to Elvis Costello ever was being in a record store with a friend around 1978 or so, 79, and a friend of mine pointing to the record and be like, this is the guy that got to replace Elvis after he died. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Like a Bruce L.I., Bruce L.E. type thing. <laughs> yeah. I now totally want to see a sequel to like Blue Hawaii starring Elvis Costello. <laughs> that would be great. And I believe them because, you know, I didn't know any better. I'd never heard of Elvis Costello. I was like, oh, that makes sense. I mean, Elvis was really popular. What are they going to do, right? They, they need a new Elvis. So this is it. Yeah. 
My first exposure to Elvis Costello was I was starting to get into two-tone ska, like second wave ska, uh, like English beat and specials type stuff. Yep, yep. That's the best kind of ska, just to, just to say. Yeah. First wave ska is really good too, oh, yeah, like yeah, Desmond first, Decker first wave, and stuff. Sure. I'm talking about I'm talking about once it left the once it left the the Caribbean. I'm talking about once it went out international or whatever. But I ended up picking up a the Elvis Costello album Spike because it had plaid on the cover and it was a two I think it was he was still put out by Two Tone uh-huh. Records at the time and I thought it was going to be a ska album and I got it home and I was like oh and then I just kind of didn't listen to it for five years and eventually I did again and, and was like oh this is actually okay yeah those are great those when that happens that's a, those are great serendipity moments yeah we still haven't talked about the comic that's true <laughs> Okay. I like Stephen Grant as a writer. I liked a lot of the stuff that he's worked on. I tend to, when I think of him, the first thing that comes to my mind is the Punisher miniseries that he did in the 80s, which unfortunately kind of brought that character back to the forefront, where he stayed for a very long time. And I wasn't crazy about that effect, but I thought it was actually a pretty well-written miniseries. Yeah, I, I've never read any Punisher solo stuff ever because I've always just been very averse to it. I'm sure some of it is probably good individual stories, and maybe that one is, but I just have an aversion to the Punisher. Totally understandable. He also had a character for Dark Horse in the 90s called The Enemy that I remember liking a lot, but I haven't revisited. But mostly I strangely know him as the guy who took over American Flag from Howard Chaikin. Oh, yeah, that's right. And did some really interesting stories in that. But I do think he's a good writer. I don't think he necessarily did a bad job with what he was tasked with in this issue. I feel like it's like he was handed, I don't know, a head of garlic and (laughs) a pound of ground beef and a papaya and told to bake a cake in 15 minutes. Right. And that cake has to come after a carefully crafted meal. Right, a multi-course meal that came before it, and then right. there's this. You have to. This is to fit in with the rest of it, but this is all you have to work with. And you have to use all the ingredients. And he used all the ingredients, and he made something that looks like a cake, and it's impressive. But I wish nobody had asked him to do that. I have to say, well, first of all, I also want to say that he let me know that originally he he was only going to have one issue to do this, and he had to beg for two issues. Oh, geez. I can't even imagine that because this issue is so busy and so packed with things. Yeah. And that so that's one thing. And second, even though overall, like as a ending to Omega the Unknown, it doesn't work. But as a, a story or, or as the in, in terms of how it's paced, the interactions between the characters, even some of uh, like uh, the way Herb Trimpey renders some of the panels, even though I think the art is below Trimpey's normal work in this issue. But I still think there's some great moments that really work in character moments that I kind of like. Like I kind of like the defenders are on their heels during the whole thing, right? They're never really in a position of like knowing what's happening or in control. They're, they get, they're basically defeated until Moondragon shows up. So there, there's something about that that I really appreciated and that felt in, the sp- in some ways in the spirit. Uh, of Omega the Unknown or a Steve Gerber comic. I can appreciate that. I honestly would not be averse to seeing what Stephen Grant would do 
with a, a mini Defenders run that was actually his. But the pacing on this, I thought, g- given the task that it was, I understand why it's that way. But when Moondragon showed up, I was just like, wait, what? Now there's flying saucers. And it makes sense if you are looking for it to wind up the Omega the Unknown run. If I was a regular Defenders reader who didn't know that at the time and was reading these as they came out, I would be so fucking lost. I can imagine a lot of people left this on the shelf, like who weren't interested in Omega, right? Because back then, engagement on comics was kind of different. So I can imagine some people who otherwise follow Defenders might have just left it on on the newsstand. Yeah, and honestly, I think I might have been one of those people. I don't know. It annoyed me that some of the things that I actually did like about the previous issues, and I haven't been that crazy about Ed Hannigan's writing on recent ones Mm -hmm. for the most part, but there were little things like, Hey, where'd, where'd Clea go? Yeah. Like, she just got added to the team, and now she gets swapped out for Moondragon, which is, incidentally, another Steve Gerber character. Uh, he didn't create the character that became Moondragon, but he gave her the name Moondragon. Mm. Before that, she was calling herself Madame McEvil, <laughs> which is a name that I fucking love. It was her origin that she ate a bad Happy Meal? <laughs> <laughs> No, she was pretending to be an evil person so that she could do something. Her real name's Heather something, and her dad got her, her dad is Drax by the Destroyer. Thanos. Yeah, but he became Drax the Destroyer. They were just like an Earth family, and then he got reanimated. It got very complicated very quickly. Superhero comics complicated? <laughs> I know, but I, I actually love the character of Moondragon, and Me I too. love her character design. I was surprised how much, never having thought to look at them side by side, how much her outfit is Ruby Thursday's outfit. When we get to sartorially speaking, I have a lot to say about this. (laughs) Or maybe not a lot, but much like their costumes, not a lot, but something. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, I love the idea, too, that just like you see it with... uh, Professor X, and you see it with her, if you're psychic, you need to be bald so that the thoughts can get out of your head that much quicker. 100%. That's why Hellcat keeps having trouble with her psychic power. She needs to shave her head. Yeah, she really does. It's like swimming. Like, you you can't have that psychic drag going on. You need to be streamlined. I don't remember what we were talking about. We are talking about the disparity between Hannigan's previous issues and jumping to this one. Like, right. For example, Clea disappears and Ruth appears out of nowhere, which I guess they just stopped and picked her up from Hell's Kitchen or wherever she was at. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Sure. But if I was reading this for the, if I was not an Omega the Unknown reader and I was reading this, I'd be like, Who is, why is this person? Who, what? <laughs> you know? I mean, it makes more sense than looking for a missing person by just driving around the whole country, I guess, in your convertible jet and just looking out the window, which seems to be their plan. I don't think it's convertible. I think that I took that as like an artistic license. Oh, that was a cutaway? Yeah, that's what I think. I mean, looks the way it's drawn, you're right. I, if, if I didn't know what a Quinjet was supposed to look like, I would probably think it's just open like a raft. But yeah, but I think it's supposed to be a cutaway. Okay, that makes sense. I thought maybe it was like a fantastic car type situation. No, when you when you see the inside, the inside shots, you can see there's glass and there's there's a ceiling and stuff. Okay, well that's disappointing. I wish it was convertible. But one thing that is interesting, even with leaving Clea out of the issue, 
is this the first lineup of a superhero team that is predominantly female? I mean, in this issue, it's all female. Mm -hmm. But going forward, I think Moondragon ends up joining the team. So you have uh, a majority of women on the team. Is there a superhero team that that had happened with before? Not that I can think of. There might be, because, you know, every time you say there isn't, there you've, someone comes up with an exception, but I can't think of one. You know, when they tried to revive the Defenders in the, I want to say, early 2010s, I don't remember exactly now when it came out, the fear, they, they revived it as the fearless Defenders with Valkyrie as the leader of the team. The way they, they plugged it was an all-woman superhero team. Huh. Is it good? It wasn't that great, no. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. The art wasn't bad. I like that that's part of the Defender's legacy, though. Yeah. And I think this is kind of the genesis of that. Although, speaking of all-female lineups, we also have the Wasp hanging out in this issue. Yeah. And she has, like, a one-off line to Valkyrie that says, like, I know we haven't exactly gotten off to a good foot. Yeah. And I didn't see any real evidence of that in this issue. I think what she might have been referring to was the time when... Valkyrie first showed up in the Avengers when it was really the Enchantress and she ended up duping all of the women who were associated with the Avengers into being feminists. I want I've I've wanted that a copy of that issue for so long, but it's like out of my price range. I've never been at least I've never been able to find it for cheap cheap enough for me to want to actually pay for it. But yeah, that's a that's a classic who's the real bigot. It's women. (laughs) Yeah, it's issue 83 of the Avengers. It really is at the end of it. It's just like, well, it's probably not great that Hawkeye is a total chauvinist piece of shit, but feminism's probably bad too. Anyway, aren't we progressive? Yeah, both sides. Roy Thomas's run on the Avengers is, uh, is a whole thing. Yeah. But I did kind of appreciate that little nod to the fact that that happened. There was no editorial note, though, right? No, there's no editorial note huh. on that. There, the editorial notes that we do get are, well, we can get into those in a little bit. But did it not occur to Wasp? Did nobody tell her that that wasn't Valkyrie? Like, that's a totally different person? I can see it being confusing being a superhero, especially at this time of wait, is this a villain or a hero? Or is it the same person and now they changed their minds a la Nighthawk? So I I can forgive Wasp that, certainly. And it is very big of her to be like, well, you know, we didn't get off on on the right foot when you brainwashed me and made me beat up all of my male co-workers. As if that was a bad thing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but to be fair, I kind of wanted to do that anyway. Um, do you think that was Stephen Grant, maybe, that, that didn't know the difference? Like, that just knew Valkyrie appeared in that, first appeared in that story, or and not knowing it was not the same one? It's possible. I'm not sure what degree of research he did going into this. Maybe that's why there isn't an editor note along with that, because they didn't want to highlight that. Um, I did kind of honestly get the impression that he read the first and the last issue of Omega the Unknown, and maybe not the ones in the middle. Yeah. When he was reading it, because most of the references are from the first issue and the last issue, which, you know, was kind of the way I used to do book reports. Right. So I can identify with that. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to talk about any of the issues, I think the first and last issues of Omega the Unknown are probably the best ones in that run. 
Um, Omega the Unknown number one, to me, is one of the best single issues of a superhero comic. Definitely one of the best first issues of a, of a superhero comic, as far as I'm concerned. It's really, really good. Yeah, if you're listening and you are interested in checking it out, you can find that cheap all over the place, and it is definitely worth reading. I think, did they put together a trade paperback of that? Huh, I know there's a trade paperback of the of the redo, of the, of the reimagining of it that Jonathan Lethem and um, Farrell Delrymple did. But mm-hmm. I don't know if, you know what, I think there is. I think there is a collection. I don't know if it's in print, but at some point there was, I think they put it out around the time that the Lethem Dalrymple version came out. That would make sense. But yeah, it's worth picking up. Even if it is just in floppies, you can usually find those pretty cheap yeah. and uh, definitely worth reading. I picked up all 10 issues for like 15 bucks at some point. And I think that's pretty standard. Yeah. I did think it was kind of odd that, so the Hulk is in this issue, Mm -hmm. but just in one page that apparently doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the story, which is weird because he was not just the one character from the Defenders, but the one character from the Marvel Universe, more or less, with the exception of a couple of villains who had any interactions with the Omega the Unknown series. And so it seems weird that you would just kind of not have him be a part of this story in a bigger way. I actually haven't read ahead, so maybe he plays a larger role in the next issue. Maybe this big silver Barba Papa that he fights is connected. You just like bringing in Barba Papa every time you can. <laughs> yes, I do. I don't blame you. Did you know that his <laughs> name means father's beard? And that's what they call cotton candy in France? I had no idea. Well, I'm here to educate people specifically about Barba Papa. I didn't even know it was French. <laughs> I didn't either. I thought it was Swedish. But, you know, I'm eligible now for a very specific grant uh, educating people about the 1970s environmentalist children's book and eventual cartoon, Barba Papa. Yeah, I never saw the cartoon. I never knew it existed until you mentioned it. I loved the books as a kid, though. Uh, I'm going to ruin it for you and tell you it has nothing, that silvery blob has nothing to do with Omega. Ah, that's disappointing, but not that surprising. What did you think about the art in this issue? Um, it was inconsistent. There were places in which I thought it was really, really good and really held up well, and there were other places in which it seemed sketchy and a little bit rushed. The Hulk, I thought, looked great in his scenes. Yeah. And other than that, I don't know. I don't know how much of that can be ascribed to uh, Steve Mitchell doing the inks. Yeah. When we saw a couple of issues ago, I think my favorite art of the Herb Trimpe run was when Mike Esposito was doing his inks. And in this, it's a little bit sloppier and a little bit sketchier, a little bit inconsistent. Yeah. But there are scenes in which I think it looks great. Yeah, the inks can be very thick, I think, in places, too, in a, in a way that's not great. Yeah. I think you're right. But yeah, overall, there there were some scenes that I really enjoyed, and we'll talk about that in the panels. Uh, there were some interesting page layouts. There was one specifically where it's like a split screen of what is happening in Las Vegas and what is happening on the robot ship. Oh, yeah. That I thought was really nice. That did also feature the Dybbuk and his weird little mustache, which I appreciated. Do we know where where Ruby Thursday 
and I think we need to talk about Ruby Thursday, but but do we know where Ruby Thursday picked up this guy? No. Because she didn't have him when she was part of the, the head, headsman, right? No. I think the Dybbuk first showed up in Omega the Unknown number 10. Ah, uh, okay. I might be wrong about that, but that was my impression, and there's really no explanation for him. I think it could be something that Steve Gerber was planning on explaining later. It could just be... I mean, I like the idea of there being a Dybbuk, a ghost from Jewish folklore Yeah, that is a malevolent spirit that is a character in this. But uh, yeah, there's no real explanation of why Ruby Thursday is hanging out with this guy, of why, despite the fact that he's seen her change shape a bunch of times, he doesn't recognize her until she puts on her bowling ball head. Yeah. And goes out of her way to explain that, yes, it is me, ha ha ha, Ruby Thursday. There's a lot of that kind of self-narration type over-explaining of things that happens in this. And when I was researching Stephen Grant, the fact that he wrote a bunch of Hardy Boys books in the 80s, it's like, oh, that is actually how things would unfold in a Hardy Boys book. This kind of like, here I am, and here's what I'm doing, and why I'm doing it. That exact same thing happens in Omega the no- uh, Unknown Number Ten, where where Dybbuk is confused by Ruby Thursday's guys, and she's like, "Oh, let me change back, so you'll know." Who oh, okay. I then I guess that's maybe more of a callback than I had realized. But I don't know. Th- there's so much folding in of old Gerber characters, and like, yeah, bringing back Ruby Thursday, bringing back Moon Dragon, specifically when Moon Dragon stopped by from space to save the day. I was like, wait, what? She got there from Titan super fast. Well, she had been monitoring cosmic activities on Earth, and that does have an editor's note, and it's, this happened in Marvel 2 and 1, number 60. And I guess the cosmic important issue that she was monitoring, because I have that issue, and so I checked it out, was... The impossible man hanging out with the thing at a fancy art gala and pretending to be a top hat. That has to be wrong. That has that, that <laughs> note has to be wrong. I, I mean, it's cosmic. Yeah, the impossible man's very powerful. But uh, yeah, isn't there a thing in the Hell in Hellcat team up around there in Marvel Two One? I don't have a complete run of Marvel Two One, but I have a bunch of them. I don't think I have that one. But I, I thought when I saw the note, I was like, oh, that must be thing in Hellcat. Maybe. I'm, I don't have the full run. But yeah, the specific issue that does get referenced is the impossible man having some wacky hijinks with Ben Grimm, which, I mean, would be a cosmic issue, I guess. So. Seems like a weird thing for Moondragon to keep her eye on. Yeah, who knows? Maybe Moondragon and Impossible Man have some sort of connection we don't know about. I mean, they probably do. It is pretty heavily implied, I think, from just how she responds to these robots that she's never seen before, that everyone from space knows each other. Yeah. It's like a unique form of spacism, I guess. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't know how to comment on that. I'm a human man from Earth, obviously. But it seems to me that probably everyone from space doesn't know each other. Yeah, probably, but you never know. Moon Dragon is the kind of character if you meet her, though you never, we would never forget her. I guess that's true, and uh, a robot never forgets either. It was weird when she showed up and with just like started ordering the robots around, and they're just like, "Oh, uh, okay, if you say so." It made me wonder if they were her robots, but I don't think that's the case. It just that whole interaction had a very uh, 
Poochie had to go back to his home planet type feel to it. Right. Clearly, I think we know from the scene that they're not hers, but I actually, that's my favorite moment in the whole comic because she comes down and she like does the thing that makes the most sense. She asks the robots what they want. (laughs) (laughs) No one before that asks them. I mean, I I know that they're threatening children, which, which I get. So like, I understand that spirits are high, but you would think amid all the fighting that goes on, they might say, well, why do you want to kill these children? And maybe they would, the robots wouldn't have given a satisfying explanation and that, and they would have continued fighting. But, you know, maybe they could have asked that simple question. Yeah, I think my first question to them probably, and this isn't to my credit, would have been, why are you dressed like Havoc from the X-Men? Yeah, that's true. They do. I never made that connection. Like, it's a less elaborate stupid hat, but they've all got that stupid hat. Can I say that I love Havoc's hat? On on Jay Miles' Funny X-Men, they always make fun of Havoc's hat. I like Havoc's hat. I'm going to be on record as saying I like Havoc's hat. I like it too, but I also (laughs) think it's stupid. (laughs) Maybe that's just the, the, like, intergalactic sign of cosmic power, right? Because he, he shoots cosmic rays or something, right? He shoots some kind of concentric circles. For years, I thought his chest was just talking to fish, uh, <laughs> because that's how you illustrate that as well. Rereading the Omega, the Unknown stuff made me realize how different Fool Killer is in that book than he was in The Defenders, yeah. two books leading up to this. In one very important regard, he had no problem killing fools in the Omega, the Unknown one, or people in general. He kills a grocer and, like, a shoplifter, both of them. And a few other people, too. Yeah. And then in this one, he's like, well, I did find that super racist mob boss, but he felt bad, so I couldn't kill him. And you very much got the impression that he was theoretically a killer, but not actively a killer. And that is definitely not the case in the in Omega the Unknown, which makes it much weirder that Richard Rory and Amber Grant are just hanging out with him. Yeah, I have no explanation for that except for different writers or a different tone, I guess, between Omega the Unknown and the Defenders. Yeah. We haven't mentioned Jim Mooney at all, who did the art for Omega the Unknown, or at least the Gerber Screenies issues. And I have to say, I think, I just wanted to mention that I think uh, Mooney does a much better job of drawing children than Trumpy does because Diane and, and James Michael Starling, they just look kind of weird. Yeah. Or they don't quite look like kids, or sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Well, I mean, to be fair, Jan Michael Vincent, uh, I'm sorry, uh, James Michael Starling, who I always want to call Jan Michael Vincent. Do you have that problem as well, or is that just me? I think that's just you. (laughs) Okay, fine. But Jan Michael Vincent, uh, he's not quite a boy, but not quite a man or whatever, because we see that at the end of the issue, he rapid evolves or gets replaced by the caped man or something. So maybe he's just illustrating that transition that makes sense. I could see. I, I could see how that could, you could come to that conclusion from reading this issue by itself. There's more of an explanation, obviously, in the next issue. But yeah, that make that makes sense. You know what I always think? I think of J. Michael Straczynski, so James Michael Starling, because JMS either way. Gotcha. I, I guess that's more of a direct uh, translation. But I mean, like, I don't know. I like thinking about Airwolf. 
Yeah, I get you. I get you. And also the Charles Bronson, the mechanic, which I, I love that movie. I've never seen it. It's really fun. I hate the Death Wish movies so much, but all of the other Charles Bronson action movies from that era, I really like. Mr. Majestic is great, if only for the watermelon shooting scene. You know, my my knowledge of of Bronson's filmography is is severely lacking. I think I've seen, like, the Magnificent Seven and Death Wish movies and a couple of other things, but not the ones you've mentioned. Well, Mr. Majestic has a scene where gangsters shoot a warehouse full of watermelons, and I have never wanted to do a scene in a movie that much. It looks so much goddamn fun, just shooting a whole barn full of watermelons. I saw a video online the other day of an alligator smashing a watermelon in its jaws. Oh, man. Alligator. Huh? (laughs) That's something. How does Corey put up with you? Well, it's easier now that it's just over the phone <laughs> once a week. <laughs> now I understand why alcohol is part of this podcast. Well, there's a ton more to talk about, but some of it'll come up in the next issue and a fair amount of it's going to come up in the minutia. Was there anything you wanted to bring up before we get into the minutia? I think we're okay to, to move on. Well, Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? One, two, three. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Rick. Osvaldo, what was your favorite sound effect? So I was I really was struggling between two of them. There are they're actually they're on page 16 and 17. I had the same two. So <laughs> Zapoing is the sound of the robot's pistol ricocheting against Dragon Fang when Valkyrie's holding it, right? Yeah. So Z-A-P-O-I-I-N-G-G, exclamation point. Zapoing! Mm-hmm. That's great. That is really great. And the other one that I, I think you're talking about, uh, the one from page 17, also Dragon Fang related, it's Val actually using the pointy end of her sword on a robot, And when she throws it through the robot, it makes the noise screep. Yeah, I think I might have to go with screep. I mean, between it's hard to choose between the two of them, but there's something about screep that really is evocative. It's very nice. I think I am going to go with zapoing because as weird a noise as it is, I can see that actually making that noise. Yeah. Like a laser blast deflecting off of a magic sword. Oh, yeah, that's a Zapoing. Yeah. And also runner up to the bloop when the Hulk hits against the silvery Barbara Papa. Uh huh. The double B bloop. There's just something about it just that's so like a matter of the fact. Like bloop. I don't know. But yeah, I'll go with Screep. But Zapoing is a, is a good choice. Yeah, I think those are two very solid choices. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you find most noteworthy in this issue? So for me, it's between Moondragon's green one-piece with cape, which is just like I've never seen a one-piece, except on Moondragon, I've never seen a one-piece that looks quite like that. And a nice color green. Yeah, it's not just a cape, but it's got the Dracula collar too. Yeah, and the gloves. The thing about Moondragon is... 
if there's one thing Moondragon has, it's like self-possession and integrity in a way, you know, like there's, she's just self-possessed character Mm -hmm. and to to carry off that much gravitas dressed that way, just, I think says a lot about her character. I know it looks really great, but the other one is very similar, which is Ruby Thursday in a, what I described as high collar one piece with boots. I guess Moondragon is wearing boots too. Yeah, they're almost the same outfit, just different colors, and Moondragons has a cape. But they've both got the same collar, they've both got the same, like, thigh-high boots, and then low-cut one-piece, and bald heads. I mean, one of them is bald because it's a spherical ruby bowling ball, Right. but they're... There isn't hair on it, so, I mean, she is bald. I wanted to ask you a question about Ruby Thursday, actually, because I don't have the issues where she shows up with the headsman. Mm-hmm. Are, are her eyes drawn that way? Does she actually have those bright, shining eyes all the time? No, and I don't actually like the eyeballs. That's funny. I do like the eyeballs. Oh, really? Yeah. I like it much more. I, th- I feel like it's more striking and more enigmatic if it's just a sphere with no facial indicators. Mm. And I think having the the eye beams there, I, I think it detracts from the whole look. But I mean, she is. Maybe it's because without the eye beams, she is so discomfort. There's something so discomforting about her, yeah, and the way she's rendered as this like like curvaceous scantily clad woman but like without a head that or without a human head that is just so unnerving and like just doesn't feel right that i think the eyes just make me that just a little more comfortable (laughs) i can understand that i think part of what i like about the character design is like the hat that it puts on the objectification of women that you see in these comic books yeah where it's just like Yup, that is how they are portrayed. And I don't know if that was Gerber's intention because he doesn't have a great track record of writing female characters. But that yeah. kind of self-awareness of a, hey, here's what I'm doing and I'm going to keep on doing it yeah. is kind of one of his hallmarks. So I can see that going either way. Yeah, I mean, the intention actually right, doesn't really matter for us to see that. So, But right. yeah, it'd be interesting. Do you know who, who the artist creator, co-creator of Ruby Thursday is? Like, who was the first person to I believe that was still Sal Buscema, because uh-huh. uh, he did, like, I think the first 50 issues or so of The Defender. Our pal Sal. Yep. So how about you? What, what stuck out to you? Was it just those two, or did you have anything else? Definitely Moondragon and Ruby Thursday. Also, I love uh, Amber Grant's neckerchief. Mm. I'm a sucker for a neckerchief in general, and that's one thing I love about these 70s comics is pretty much every other character, if they're dressed as a civilian, is going to be wearing a straight-up Mr. Furley neckerchief. And uh, Amber Grant uh, carries that look off very well. Yeah, I did like James Michael Starling's jacket. very 70s. Also, sometimes he looks like he's wearing a turtleneck, and other times he looks like he's not. It is a rad outfit that he's wearing. I would totally wear that. It would be weird to see on a 12-year-old, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Just like 12-year-old wearing kind of a leisure suit. In terms of clothes, also, there was kind of a... I know you don't do timestamps like you do for the Teen Titans, but when Ruby Thursday is dressed as a policewoman and she's wearing a uniform but with a skirt... Mm Mm-hmm. That's definitely a, a timestamp, right? The idea that like police women were expected to do their job enforcing the law, but wearing a skirt because they were women. Yeah, like lady cop. Yeah, exactly. 
God, I love Lady Cop, and God, Lady Cop is so bad. Yeah, I bought an issue of Lady Cop because of you. Oh, I'm sorry. It was a, it was a dollar. It's okay. It is so worth reading, and so unintentionally hilarious, and just I think kind of important to look at. Just like this is what it looks like when Robert Koeniger tries to write a feminist comic oh, book. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> Osvaldo. Yes. Behold or be gone. Living in a Barba Papa house. As mentioned, I will talk about Barba Papas any opportunity I can get. Do you think that the house that Jane Michael Starling's parents lived in or whatever is a Barba Papa house? No, no, no. I'm just suggesting, but the idea of Barba Papas comes up because Hulk is fighting a big silvery Barba Papa, and the Barba Papas made their homes by pouring concrete over themselves and then shrinking out of it. And there were these cool, like, ovoid-looking houses. And when I was a kid, I wanted to live in one so, so badly. But now I'm seeing some, frankly, drawbacks to that situation. And I want to know what your thoughts are living in a Barba Papa house. Uh, do you behold that or do you want it to be gone? I would have to, have to weigh that because, I mean, yes, they are awesome. I also feel like if you <laughs> ever find yourself fighting a Barba Papa, you're probably on the wrong side of the fight. Well, I'm not saying you should necessarily try to reappropriate this house from Barba Papa. I'm saying maybe this is a scenario in which their family moved. Right, or maybe they invited you to live with them. They're very nice. They are. If that's the situation, then I'm giving it definitely a be gone. I love the Barba Papas, but far too much of their everyday life is creating things using their whole bodies. And I don't want to be in the position of having to refuse a pie that someone baked by turning into a rolling pin. (laughs) Like, I definitely don't want to eat that pie, but I also don't want to just be like, hey, you can't just slather your whole body over a piece of dough and then expect me to eat it. They look really clean. <laughs> Most of them do. There's that one that's super hairy. Just because he's hairy doesn't mean he's not clean. No, but it means that some of that hair is going to come off if he's a rolling pin. Hmm, maybe he's not the one who does the baking. Mm. But let me ask you this. If I live in the Barbara Papa house, am I responsible for the upkeep of the house? Like if I Like my own house? Yeah, I, th- I think so, yes. In that case, I'm, I'm going to have to say be gone as well. I have no problem living with the Barber Papas. I have no problem with the food that they create with their bodies. I have no problem with that. Who am I to judge? <laughs> I think they're very sweet. I think it's really cool to see them change shapes. But a house that is very different from a standard house and a house takes a lot of upkeep as it is, I don't want to have to do that. You know, I don't know what their HVAC system is like. I don't know what their furnace is like. They may not even have that. So it's got to cost a lot to keep heated just because it is made entirely of concrete. So and there's a lot of like open windows, like trying to find pane glass for those windows. It's got to be really, really difficult. Yeah, everything would be custom. Yeah, it's always been a lifelong dream of mine. But I got to say, I think it is one that is best left as a dream. So I'm unfortunately going to have to give that a be gone. Yeah, I, I am too. You know, I visited the um, out here near in, where in Pittsburgh where I live, not not far as Falling Water, which is a um, Frank Lloyd uh, Wright house that he uh, designed with water pouring, like the natural water pours through it and all this stuff. And people love it. And I was when I visited it, I was like, I guess this is nice, but like, kind of wouldn't want to live here at all. Like, 
I mean, there's also the idea, too, just the Frank Lloyd Wright thing reminded me. I mean, I know he specifically designed a house for Wilt Chamberlain because houses are generally not designed for a seven-foot-tall person. Yeah. Everything in that house, the Barba Papa house, is going to be designed for Barba Papa use. That's got to just be, even just like having a rounded floor that's a bevel, yeah. like you're going to be breaking your damn ankle almost every day. Yeah. So yeah, but definitely be gone. All right. So that's two be gones. In every issue of a Defenders comic, there is one character who has to act in a way counter to their previously established character or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? I had a really hard time with this one. I really had a hard time deciding who was the sucker. I did too. I didn't know if it was the Wasp for just coming along and being like, I, I just want a chance to fly the Quinjet. I'm not sure if that's really her personality, at least not. I, I'm more used to like Roger Stern era Avengers, so I don't know what she was doing at this time. But I think I went with Val's lack of confidence, only because it seems to mostly have come from the previous issue, the haranguing she got from Nighthawk. And who listens to Nighthawk? Well, that's a thing. It seems like nobody should listen to Nighthawk, but a lot of people do. I mean, he is a very rich white man. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I'm going to go with, with her ongoing lack of confidence, which is part of what leads them on this adventure, right? Because Hellcat uh, suggests it because she's like, oh, we just need an adventure, right? I think she says that in the previous issue. Right. And then, But then it continues, and they even talk about it in the middle of fighting. That was a weird little exchange. Kind of apropos of nothing, just a, a panel that's just basically both characters saying, hey, you remember how this happened in the last issue? Sure do. Okay, back to fighting robots. Yeah. How about you? I also had a difficult time picking a sucka, but it was a choice between basically all of the characters from Omega the Unknown that showed up in this. Oh, right. I didn't even think of them because I didn't think of them as defenders. Yeah. Regardless of whether they're defenders, I think they're they're eligible for this category. And Jan Michael Vincent, this is the first time we've seen him have thought bubbles. Yes. That was just, wait, he doesn't have that. He has captions. Like, part of what works really well about Omega the Unknown is that it does have that kind of different narrative structure. It's actually way ahead of its time. It is, but also it keeps the character more remote feeling. Yeah, and mysterious. Especially yeah. since in Omega the Unknown, there are many moments where James Michael Starling and the Cape Man have kind of like their minds kind of overlap in a way, their thoughts kind of become one. But mm -hmm. it by not having thought bubbles, they can get around actually make having to show us what that's like. They can just describe the sensation without. Mm -hmm. So I think that, yeah, well, as soon as I saw Thought Bubbles in here, in addition with JMS emoting at all, like showing emotion, is like totally a sucker thing because he never does that in his own series. Right? Yeah. But you also, in addition to that, I feel like the other characters, the Richard Rory and the Ruth and the Amber, they were all acting kind of like themselves, but just more like, I don't know, Cliff Notes versions of their characters. Like, just like, yeah, here are the broad strokes of who I am, and let's just get that out of the way. 
it kind of reminded me. I, did you ever watch the the last Airbender? Yes. I was just rewatching that actually, uh, not the movie, just to be clear. Yeah, yeah. But the issue where the characters go and see a play in which yes. they are the the characters that are in the play, that's what Richard Rory and Amber Grant and Ruth Hart and like the the Omega the Unknown characters seemed like in this. Kind of like a gloss of who their characters were, but in more more broader characters I mean, and really without broad. the fine detail. Does Amber have a personality at all in this? Which is really stinks because she's one of the best characters from the original series. She's a little bit sassy. The Okay, so she's the person who calls the kid punk. And that's kind of all you get for her. And Ruth is meek. Ruth is meek, which is weird to read even in Omega the Unknown, because in Man-Thing, she's way more like Amber Grant is in Omega the Unknown. Mm-hmm. She was like a, a freewheeling character who's trying to get Richard Rory to loosen up, and she was like hanging out with bikers and shit. Yeah, but she had bad experiences, right? She did have a bad experience, but it didn't result in meekness, certainly. It, it was, she was definitely the more adventurous of the two. And then once, as soon as she's in Omega the Unknown, then she's just like this meek character. Maybe it's Hell's Kitchen that did it to her. Maybe. <laughs> certainly more dangerous than the swamps of Florida that are filled with alligators and man things i forget which issue it is but there's an, a scene in omega the unknown where they come home and someone has taken a dump in the foyer of their building <laughs> do you remember that yeah <laughs> i do remember that i thought that was actually a really nice touch it was a nice touch but it also was like not the kind of thing you often see in a marvel comic is all i'm saying that is absolutely true but what i'm saying is that never happened in citrusville florida that's true So we talked a little bit about the artwork already, but uh, what was your favorite panel in this issue? I really, again, had a hard time picking because like I said, my, my feelings about the art in general weren't great, but I really did love the Screep panel. Yeah, that was a fun one. It's kind of got the red shading, the text has the red, the sound effect has the red, the laser gun is falling out or flying out of the robot's hand, kind of the impact lines coming out from the middle. Uh, it has almost like a manga feel to it. I really like that a lot. It's probably my favorite, but if I was going to give a runner-up, it might be a really weird-shaped panel on page six where Ruby Thursday is first transforms back into her full form from the, the lady cop, and she's got the Kirby crackle <laughs> all around her, and you can just see Dibbick's tail. The, the, the perspective is weird, but you can see Dibbick's tail in the foreground, actually. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, that is a cool-looking panel, too. I'm going to go with the Melty Mom head on page 10. I had that on my list, too, as a possibility. It is in the flashback, but it is a truly horrifying image of his mom's Melty robot head saying, don't listen to the voices. It's dangerous to listen. Listen. Danger. Yeah. It looks like it is right out of Halloween 3 season of The Witch, <laughs> where, like, the kid's head turns into a sack full of bugs. Yeah, I know that reference. It is really, really disturbing. The only reason I couldn't pick it is because, one, she looks a lot like Amber in these three panels. Yeah. And so the differentiation is kind of weird. And Jim Mooney's drawing of this same exact scene in Omega the Unknown number one is, I think, a lot better. Thus, that's why I didn't pick it. I think that's that's totally fair. My backup was on page seven. 
when we see Jan Michael Vincent's parents Mm -hmm. or his robot parents. And it's not necessarily that it's a great panel. It's not bad, certainly, but they don't have any pupils in their eyes and they look super fucking creepy. And the idea that Diane is just like, you're, you told me your parents were dead, but here they are. Look, those pupilless automatons that haven't moved in a week are clearly your parents and they're just fine. What's your problem? Yeah, let's party. We've got this whole house yeah. to ourselves. We're, we're preteens. <laughs> Where do they keep the alcohol? What was your pie not made out of steel? What words in this issue did you like the best, much like you would like a pie were it not made out of steel? This was easy for me anyway. Right near the end, page 27, Moon Dragon. Hellcat's about to explain to her what's happening. We're in big trouble with these. And Moon Dragon just says, no explanation is necessary. As a goddess of the mind, I am already privy to your every thought. The situation is clear to me. And it's just the, the way she just says it and, and just it goes, it's perfect with her character. It's just the words are, I just love it. I loved that, too. Uh, That was on my short list. But I also really liked on page three, Patsy thinking to herself, Jeepers, that's the third time today I've heard this story. I wish we'd talk about something interesting for a jumping gollywogs. Yeah. So the combination of the Jeepers and the jumping gollywogs I found delightful. And also that it comes at the end of the recap of the Omega the Unknown story, which I had just reread all of and then read the summary of and then was working on writing the synopsis of. I was like, oh, yeah, that is what I am thinking right now. Yeah, that's that's good. The, the choice of jumping Gollywog is also really weird because the, the Gollywog is a really problematic figure. I'm not familiar with it. It's like a racist, like, black-faced child character from, like, UK stories. Oh, shit. God damn it. Every time there's a fun-sounding made-up word, it's a goddamn racial slur. <laughs> Alan Moore tried to bring, or did bring it back for one of his later League of Extraordinary Gentlemen things, which is, you know, kind of controversial because he tried to make use of it, but it also kind of, you know, represented it in a way. Yeah. But yeah, it was a, it was a weird choice. I mean, I'm sure it's the kind of throwaway thing where the, the writer didn't think about it, right? at that time but uh, to me reading it in 2020 what year is it 2020 yeah uh reading it in something like that 2016 i like to just think the time stopped in 2016 if time's gonna stop it would have been nice if it did it a little bit before then (laughs) that's true but still i had to choose between now and then yeah but anyway reading it now i was just like oh that's that's a choice i guess oh yeah i i wish i had known that i was entirely unaware i thought that was God damn it. It's like mumbo jumbo is a word that has weird racist origins. People use it all the time. They don't know that, right? I didn't know that. And I think I use that all the time. God damn it. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Well, shit. Then I'm definitely going with uh, (laughs) as a goddess of the mind. That's way better. Besides that, I think what you picked was right. It makes sense. It was was clever. And it was kind of like, yeah, I know this already, right? Like, we all know this. Um, But I do want to start like interrupting people and say, as a goddess of the mind, I'm already privy to your every thought. (laughs) It's such a great phrase. It seems like it would be so useful. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. That is absolutely like, that is if you want a distillation of who Moondragon is. There, There you go. 
Every issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender and also a worst offender. In this issue, who was your mm, worst offender? Let's start with the bad one first. So I had difficulty with this one too. I almost chose Kyle just because he's Kyle, right? And when he comes back to his home and the FBI is waiting for him and they're like, we have an injunction on you ever being a superhero again. And we're like, great. Or at least I was like, I was like yeah, that makes sense. You know, if anyone should have their superheroing license revoked, it's this guy. And he, he's like, I'm kind of glad the Defenders are over, kind of. And you know that that kind of is not because he's worried about his friends. It's because of his own like desire to be adventurous, right? At least that's the impression I got. Oh, yeah. But I think because he doesn't play as big a role in this, and he, in this issue and he doesn't play a role in the Omega stuff at all, I went with Patsy with Hellcat because even though typically I really like her devil may care attitude and her like quippy patter it felt tonally wrong with everything else going on in the issue so for me that was the criteria i went with because otherwise everyone is kind of not doing a great job in this issue except for my best offender i actually had patsy as my worst too but for different reasons i decided to go with her because when she goes to try to call for help in the quinjet she has the entire Avengers Rolodex of superheroes at her disposal. And her first thought as to who she's going to try to contact is Kyle. <laughs> like, what the fuck are you thinking? And then she compounds that lack of discernment in choosing allies when she has the fancy ray gun and she decides to toss it to Richard Rory instead of either Amber or Ruth. Like, Amber, I think, would be the clear choice. Yeah. She's much more confident and much more competent than Richard, and I think even spending the afternoon in the Quinjet, you would have picked up on that. But he's a guy, so she tosses him the gun and he doesn't know how to use it, and he shoots her with it. Yeah. So yes, Patsy is my choice also for worst offender, which grieves me because I do like the character a great deal. Yeah, me, so do I. Conversely, who do you have as the best defender? This is not going to be a surprise for you. It's Moondragon. Moondragon is the best defender. She shows up. She takes control. She, like, asks questions. She's clearly the best, right? She goes, you, the leader <laughs> of the band. I cannot allow you entrance to this house unless you state your business here. And the robot's like, oh, shit. <laughs> we have no quarrel with you, priestess, you know? Yeah, I do love Moondragon in this issue. I actually, though, decided to go with Valkyrie for finally using the pointy end <laughs> of her sword. She never uses the pointy end of her sword. Fair enough. And it's, I, it's different because it's a robot, and I can appreciate why she hasn't before. I think it is largely to her credit, although I know I keep bringing this up. If you're not going to stab people or slice people with your sword, why don't you get a staff? But she's got the magic sword. She eviscerates a robot with it. And that was nice to see. Yeah. It it reminded me of old cartoons in that way, too. Like in like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, they had to change the bad guys from ninjas to robot ninjas. Right. Or in G.I. Joe, there was a switch where they made suddenly all of the bad guys are specialty robots, not Cobra Troopers, so that they could oh. actually show them blowing them up. Huh, I never, I guess I never watched G.I. Joe long enough. I just know they always used all the G.I. Joe guns went from like the actual military guns that Larry Hama would be very carefully 
detailing and explaining in the comics and in the the cards that came with the actual toys but in the cartoon they, they're all laser guns like it's an ak-47 but it shoots a laser yeah and so i enjoyed that and also just yeah finally getting val to use the pointy end of her sword was just so cathartic to me that i decided to choose her as best defender for that that reminds me of mark millar's uh one of his critiques of the of the Ang Lee Hulk movie, which I'm I like that movie actually. <laughs> it's, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I like it. It's the best Hulk movie. But he's like, you know, who wanted to see Hulk smash the tank and then all the soldiers jump out safely? And I was like, I did. <laughs> Cause that's, yeah, I do too, actually. <laughs> because that's how the Hulk works, right? That's that's how it should work. I will say I did not like the Ang Lee Hulk movie all that much. I saw it in the theaters and I fell asleep and I haven't revisited it. I remember thinking it's a like three hour almost superhero movie that has not a single joke in it. And that was I was like, Macbeth has a joke. Um, It's a dick joke. (laughs) But my favorite critique of that movie was the you wouldn't like me when I'm Ang Lee. Oh, Yeah, I mean, the plot isn't so great, but there's a lot of thematic stuff in that movie that I really like. And I loved him fighting the big mutant poodle because, again, that's a a very Hulk thing. That's definitely like a Bill Mantlo era, like Hulk thing. (laughs) I appreciate that, too. I also, like I said, I haven't revisited it. You should. You should give it a shot. I I, I will give it another shot. It's better than Howard the Duck. I'm sure that's on the blurb on the video box cover. (laughs) Now, Osvaldo, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? So the only time we see the Hulk in this issue is when he fights the big, what we're calling the Barbara Papa, but it's this big amorphous silvery blob thing. Mm -hmm. And the silvery blob says, for I have come to study you, he says to the Hulk. Don't be alarmed. Then he says... If you are not found wanting, you shall be honored over all as the mightiest of my master's servants. And the Hulk says, Hulk does not want to serve anyone, silver thing, right? And he smashes it, or at least he tries to. So I think what the Hulk's rule here is a rule that early anthropologists needed to learn, which was the studying of a thing or of a people or person, right, With, with presumably with agency, should not give you power over it. Right. That being able to describe it and maybe try to explain some aspect about it shouldn't let you determine what its fate is or shape it or direct it in a certain way. And Hulk knows that. Right. He's like, you, just because you study me doesn't mean you get to tell me what to do or should I should have to, like, listen to you or that you know me better than I know myself. Wow. So I think that that's that's the Hulk's rules. The Hulk's rule like, is, a, is, a, is an anthropological one or something that anthropologists needed to learn, which was that just because they study some other peoples doesn't mean that they know those peoples enough to tell them what to do. Wow. So that is not the first time in this comic book that we have seen a silver being from space employing pre-Boaz <laughs> anthropology. Correct. Like that was what the Silver Surfer did in the very early issues of The Defenders. It's a lesson worth learning multiple times, I guess. Absolutely. I think that's an excellent Hulk's rule. I had the Hulk's rules being one that he learned later from hearing about what Moondragon was up to. And that is, if you speak as though you were in charge, people will treat you as though you were in charge. It's a weird phenomena. It's one that I 
had to employ breaking up fights when I was bartending. There was no reason why people should have listened to me when I told them to knock it off. But if you if you speak with authority and with like kind of like a dad voice, then people listen. When Moondragon showed up and told those robots what to do and started ordering them around, she acted like she was in charge. So they treated her like she was in charge. And uh, that was what the Hulk took away from that exchange. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And Moondragon is also has the benefit of being white, which I think helps. Yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I've definitely done that. I've I've done that thing where like, I just pretend like you're supposed to be doing the thing you're doing, right? Do it with authority. Yep. And chances are, no one's going to want to question you. I may have talked about it on the show before, but there was like one time where a guy like probably had about a hundred pounds on me, and I'm not an insignificant man myself. Had grabbed a cue ball and was about to hit another guy with it, and I told him to knock it off, and he goes, "Oh, sorry." <laughs> And he puts it down. As he is leaving, he goes and goes to pick it up to take it outside with him, presumably to kill the other person. And I was like, hey, put that back. And he's like, fine. <laughs> it was just this weird, like, why are we both treating this situation like I get to be in charge of it? I'm glad that we do, but okay. <laughs> yeah, you used your bartender powers for good. I tried to sometimes. Good or personal amusement. And that's the Hulk's rules. Well, just one thing left to get to. In the year of our Lord, 1979, and the month of our Lord, October, what Wong doings was Wong doing? I was thinking about the way we Wong, and uh, Wong in October, maybe even a little before October, of 1979 had decided to go through his record collection and see what was worth keeping and what he was going to bring down to Bleaker Bob's and trade in to, you know, get something better. And he put a few of the records on so that he could hear them again and give them another shot. Because you know how it is. Sometimes you buy an Elvis Costello record and you think it's going to be ska and it's not, right? And you put it down for five years. So he, mm -hmm. he was going through his records and he found Beatlemania, the album. Oh, so he puts it on to give it another shot because he wasn't that hot about it the first time he heard it. And when he puts it on, Steve and Strange happens to hear from the other room this thing that sounds like the Beatles, but is clearly not the Beatles. Right. The the voices aren't quite right as close as, as they are. The instrumentation is definitely different. Right. The arrangements are a little different. So Steven starts to get worried. Right. So he asks Wong, what is this? And he goes, oh, it's it's Beatlemania. Stephen is like, huh, insect madness? So he was certain at this point that this was a sign that the insect overlords from Earth 1079 were taking human form and were going to take over the world. And that clearly this Beatlemania thing was the center uh, of this. Now, he had to prepare because he knows that the insect overlords of Earth 1079, are, they're a... Uh, foe that is not to be trifled with. So he had to go deep into meditation, look to his magic books, use his Eye of Agamotto, and it's going to take a while for preparation. But Wong, knowing his, you know, knowing how Stephen is, his roommate, I like to think of Steve as his roommate, was like, well, I need to figure out a way to not have him mess this up or like, you know, cause uh, anyone any harm. And he didn't like the Beatlemania record that much. So he just called up his friend, John Lennon, who he used to hang out with at the Dakota, Sometimes, you know, they're both in New York. And he was like, look, 
I know, I know you probably know something about Beatlemania, but are you guys really cool with it? Like, is this this Broadway show review? Is this something that you're with? So in 1979, Apple Records or Apple Incorporated sued Beatlemania over the money they were making, whether they were paying the Beatles enough for the use of their music uh, and all those things. And they thought, you know, maybe that would end the show and Steve would not have a reason to go you know, hog wild with his magic and actually do some harm as he often does, you know, making his assumptions. He also, as we know, Wong was very interested in social justice and he wanted to make sure that he could get to the gay and lesbian civil rights march in DC that happened on October 14th. So he had to make sure that he got this taken care of and he figured lawyers will take care of it, right? I'll, I'll put this stuff in motion and that'll take care of it. Turns out they were coming to some sort of understanding. It wasn't going to end the show. But Wong was able to convince them that they should leave New York, they should take the, the show on tour, just to make sure that Steve didn't mess with it. So that's why in October of 1979, the Beatlemania bus and truck tour began. And in October, uh, October 17th of 1979, Beatlemania closed on Broadway. And that was to keep Steve from his assumption that the insect overlords of Earth 1079 needed to be dealt with. And he was able to go to the march uh, on the 14th and not have to worry about it, knowing that by the time Stephen was done with his preparations, the show would be closed, they'd be on tour, Steve would find something else to do. And, and, and that happened, he went to Atlantis actually to go recruit Namor, as we know, for this other mission. And he forgot all about the insect madness that was about to come from another dimension. Excellent. Well, that was one of the Wong's doings that Wong was doing. Other than that, he was uh, watching some baseball. You see, the uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates had picked up Doc Ellis from the New York Mets earlier that season. Oh, I know that well. And uh, because of that, Wong started following the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1979, and October was when they won the World Series. And he was ecstatic about that. And Steve was a little bit sore, because Stephen Strange is kind of an asshole, and therefore is a big Yankees fan. <laughs> so Steve started thinking, well, I can't allow these Pittsburgh Pirates, these ruffians, to win another World Series. I must get these New York Yankees back into the swing of things. So he, he started poking around mystically, and he's like, you know what? I'll give him some, some batting practice tips. And he did a little bit of temporal research, and heard about this guy that was going to be a big deal, Don Mattingly. So he's like, hmm, yes, I'll, I'll open a time portal and let Billy Martin take a look at the year 1984 when Don Mattingly will lead the entire league in batting percentage. So he did that. He opened up a time portal and let the uh, Yankees manager, Billy Martin, look into the year of 1984. Only when he had him watching Don Mattingly, it didn't end up being Don Mattingly taking batting practice. It ended up being Don Mattingly watching Ghostbusters. Ooh. And Billy Martin saw that, and it happened to be the scene where the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man showed up. And it freaked Billy Martin the fuck out. Which was why, on October 24th, 1979, Billy Martin punched out a marshmallow salesman... <laughs> named Joseph Cooper, and consequently ended up getting fired from the New York Yankees as their uh, was manager. Was that the third time? I believe that was just the second. 
but I, I could be I could be mistaken about that. And that is the Wong that needed writing in October of 1979. That's great. Uh, I like anything that bashes the Yankees. Oh, me too. <laughs> and since I'm a Mets fan and a Pirates fan, it works out for me. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Osvaldo. This was awesome. I had a great time talking to you. And you'll be able to come back in a couple of weeks and talk about Defender 77. Can't wait to talk about it. Yes. Awesome. Uh, if people are looking for your work or to hear more of your thoughts on things, is there a way for them to do that? Uh, the primary way would be to visit my uh, blog, The Middle Spaces, which is easily found at themiddlespaces.com. I also maintain a Tumblr site called Notes from Comics Collecting, where I share photos of different comics in my collection. And I write, you know, everything from like one sentence to like two or three paragraphs, just about the issue or about my experience of having read or collected the issue. A lot of them are comics from when I was a kid. So it's not that different from your video series you do on the Patreon, but just in short written form. So yeah, that I think either one of those places, Notes from Comics Collecting or TheMiddleSpaces.com or on Twitter at TheMiddleSpaces. Yeah, I totally recommend that you check out The Middle Spaces. It's a great page and a great resource and always informative and entertaining. And uh, yeah, I, I read it all the time. You guys should too. I wrote about every single issue of Omega the Unknown, both, both series. So there's if you're more if you're interested in more Omega the Unknown, there's plenty. And also, if you listen to the uh, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show series that Lisa and I do. And you want more information on Howard the Duck, Osvaldo did a great job writing up all of the Gerber issues of Howard the Duck in conversation with the newer Chip Zdarsky Howard the Duck. Is it Chip Zdarsky? Yeah, it's Chip Zdarsky and Joe Quinones, who the art in that, in that series is great. So you should definitely check those out as well. Those are just some places to start with it, but just dig into it. There's a ton of wonderful material on that site. Thanks for saying that. Thanks for not making me a liar when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by contacting us at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294, or... As this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. Uh, we're all also up in every other aspect of the internet and the places you might expect to see us and maybe some you might not. So just have yourself a little adventure. Type in Titan Up the Defense, that's T-I-T-A-N, into your web browser and click on the first thing you see that isn't about football. Or heck, if you like football, click on one of those too. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by looking us up at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to the aforementioned What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's the monthly podcast that Lisa and I host about Howard the Duck. I love your dedication to saying the full name every time. You deserve <laughs> well, credit for that. <laughs> well, as the full name of the show states, that is the full name of the show. <laughs> But you also get access to, I've been making almost daily uh, video reviews of classic comic books, and there's also a bunch of other bonus podcast material up there that you can check out. So uh, you can do that. There's hours and hours of bonus 
content there for donors. But more importantly, it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to continue doing it. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, uh, you can leave us a review in places that reviews are left. Let me uh, read a recent five-star review that we've gotten. Zombie Mesa 6 writes, Always a joy to listen to. Five stars. Whether you grew up loving comics and miss having weekly conversations with your friends about books, or just want adult humor and fun talking about comics, you don't need to have read any of these books, I think you should give Hub and Corey a listening to. A fun weekly romp going over comics. I've been listening for some years now, and I enjoy so very much their conversations and point of view. In a world that's upside down and dark, this is a bright light that keeps you going. Wow. Thank you so much, Zombie Mesa 6. Yeah, that sounds great. It almost sounded like a like a threat. Like, I'm going to give you a good listening to. Well, how else will I learn? <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for giving us a good listening to. And, uh, you know, if you think other people should give us a listening to, why not leave us a five-star review? Thanks so much. And uh, thanks for joining us, Osvaldo. Uh, anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? Uh... No. <laughs> Fair not. enough. I've said everything there is to say, except for in two weeks when we have more to talk about Moondragon, which I'm looking forward to. <laughs> Excellent. I'm looking forward to that as well. Okay. Well, until next time, Zapoing! Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, blue! <laughs> <laughs>